Welcome to the New Masculine Podcast. This is a place where masculine identifying people come together in community to disrupt outdated models of masculinity and together construct new models for our way forward as men. As a special note, while this conversation is between men, this podcast values all beings and seeks to create positive impacts for all. I'm your host, Travis Stock. I am a master life coach, an equus coach, which means I often partner with horses when supporting clients, and I'm a teacher. In my coaching work, I am passionate about the balance of masculine and feminine energies in each of us, regardless of gender. I seek to help others nurture a relationship with both types of energy, which often leads to a greater sense of wholeness. And yet what I found in my work with men is that many of us have been taught messages about what it means to be a man by first teaching us to avoid anything that is associated with the feminine. That avoidance leads to few experiences of intimacy, emotions outside of anger, vulnerability, or even a sense of belonging. Striving to comply with these models of masculinity has many of us feeling isolated, ashamed, unworthy, afraid, angry, and depressed. That's why I started this podcast, to bring men together who are ready for something new, something more whole. My next guest is definitely doing his part to help men create a greater sense of wholeness in their lives. Ryan Allen describes himself as a spiritual being, as a human, and as a gay man. I connected with Ryan after hearing him talk about his work on one of my favorite podcasts to listen to, The Spiritual Gaze. I was immediately intrigued hearing Ryan share about a program he created for gay men called Lifted Men that focuses on uncovering the gifts in each of us that are often hidden below the pain and shame embedded in our lives. This spoke so much to one of the major insights that guided me as I created this podcast. There are certain voices that have not been heard by the broader society around the topic of masculinity. If we as gay and queer men could transform the shame taught to us by our culture, we could positively take up more space in this conversation and help create more balance within masculinity. I love that immediate feeling of kinship I felt with someone whose sense of purpose felt closely aligned with mine. Not only does his work have a lot to offer the world, but so does Ryan's personal journey of healing. In fact, his own story and his continued healing seems to be something that deeply guides what he shares with the world. Enough of me pointing out the magic of this guy. Let's hear directly from him. Welcome to the New Masculine Podcast, Ryan. Thank you. I love the intro. <laughs> hearing how people frame uh frame the work i'm doing and how it relates to you it um that makes me feel great thank you yeah I, I think it's so fascinating to see we're all sort of putting our brands out there and doing our work out there in the world and to hear other people's perspective on how it lands or what the impact it has yeah um, i think it's really powerful to hear that yeah. absolutely and how how we find each other especially since we're doing some similar work. Yeah, totally. So I shared a little bit from my perspective about what I know about you and what I've experienced of you. Is there anything else you think the listeners should know as we get into this conversation? Um, I, I just like that you asked the question of how I identify. And one of those things, as you said it um, today, especially rings true. And that's just a human being. And I think... Um, that's something I'm really relating to right now, especially as we're kind of recording this um, while people are quarantined and so many of us are connecting with each other just as humans all experiencing the same thing. So that's kind of heavy on my heart. Um, and 
guess, light on my heart at the same time, <laughs> how, uh, how we're all human beings. Um, but that defines a lot of my work is just my personal experience. Um, I sometimes think to myself, like, I want to be as m the most human that I can be. And it's funny because I went through a period where I was wanting to be the most spiritual that I could be and how the two come together is kind of where I think my work takes off. Oh, I love that perspective of sort of noticing there's points of our, your life where you're deeply connected to developing that sort of spirit side. And then there's then reality and living in a body and living in this experience. And as you were saying, we're recording this in the middle of some of us, well, most of us being sort of self-isolated quarantine physically from one, one another due to sort of the coronavirus stuff that's going on. And, and I love that you sort of point out that that draws you deeper into the human. Um, so then, then, then where the bridge between the two is where your work is and where you, where your magic is in the world. And I love, I just sort of love that framework, um, that helps us notice how you, how you support others in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's like, for me, that feels like the most powerful place to be as an individual is really connected to my humanity as well as my spirituality and not really denying either side. Yeah. Well, I'm really curious to sort of dive in now to our conversation around masculinity. And first, I, I think you have, you're going to have a lot to offer us around the work you do in the world. But I'm also really interested in the personal journey you've been on as it relates to masculinity. I know, at least for myself and most of my other gay male friends, it's a it's an important part of our identity and that shapes our relationship to masculinity. And so, just kind of curious, what are some of the original ideas or meanings you had around masculinity growing up? Mm. Well, I grew up, uh, the first part of my childhood, I grew up uh, living out in the country. Um, and the men in my life, both my brothers, my dad, all of the men that were around us, um, were all very like idyllic masculine men um in the sense of, and, and that period was like the 70 late 70s early 80s so uh it was like the masculine then was very stoic and was a provider and fixed things and was self-sufficient and didn't need help from anybody else didn't really have emotions those kind of things um so i think that that's what I was ingrained with at a very young age is, is looking at men in that way. And looking back now, being able to see that I wasn't, I wasn't that way, obviously, you know, as a gay kid, I was super open hearted and, um, and loving and spastic. And I wanted to <laughs> create, I wanted to use my imagination and, and express and dance and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's taken a lot of my lifetime to start to uncover all of those things that were originally my gifts. And so being that the, the sort of ideals that you saw of masculinity didn't match with sort of your natural expression, mm -hmm. how did you deal with that or navigate that as a child? What did you do to sort of 
did you try to reach for those ideals or did you lean away from them? How did you approach it? I don't think I ever tried to reach for those ideals. In fact, I know I didn't because <laughs> my grandmother lived across the street from us and she had um, all of her costume jewelry and her wigs and all of that kind of stuff. And so she was kind of my safe space to be what whoever and whatever I wanted to be. Um, and she was in full acceptance of me all the time. So I would go over there and that would be the place that I would like express um, my more creative side, I guess you would say. Um, but I guess that doesn't mean that those ideals of masculinity didn't affect me because I didn't reach for them. But um, yeah, I think it affected the way that I talked to myself, my own internal dialogue. Um, I think became pretty strict and I don't think that I recognized that until like maybe even five, six years ago, how intense my internal dialogue was because I just assumed everyone had that sort of inner critic voice. Um, so I think it affected me deeply in that way. Um, but outward, outward expression, I was pretty self-expressed. I was always seen as a happy kid. And I think in a lot of ways I was, um, but of course there's repression happening without us knowing. And as we try to model ourselves to fit into a family dynamic so that we're loved and accepted. Um, yeah, that's all the, that's all the deeper stuff, but on the outside, um, I was a pretty, pretty self-expressed kid. Yeah, I think what you're pointing to is what I was talking about in the intro to the podcast around the shame that's taught to us by our culture. And yeah. and I think that's such a common way of navigating that shame is to have such a really strict, perfectionistic type internal dialogue with self. Mm -hmm. It's definitely the way I navigated things. I swung the pendulum in terms of feeling like I sort of came into this world failing as a man from the get-go. <laughs> then I swung it into perfectionism around my grades and around music and around the things that I was engaging with so mm. that I could earn value in some way that I could like really be harsh and perfectionist about it so that I could make up for some sort of internal flaw. I felt. Absolutely. Yeah. So I really resonate with that sort of strict inner dialogue that's created in that space. Yeah. How did the, your brothers and your dad, how did they, um navigate you you said your grandma was your safe space but like how did the men in your life navigate you being an open-hearted expressive artistic boy um my brothers were are um 10 and 12 years older than me so we weren't necessarily like really growing up together they were teenagers when i was a kid so they were i i was kind of like i was kind of like their <laughs> this sounds bad, but I was kind of like their puppy. Like they're like, oh, look at this cute little thing, you know? <laughs> um, because I came into my family's life so much later than everybody else, they were kind of already a unit and I came along later. So um, I hadn't really thought about this before, but now that I'm thinking about it, it's kind of like I was like the cute um, accessory to the family. <laughs> oh, interesting. In you know, of course, like they wanted to take me hunting and fishing and camping and do all of that stuff. And the church that I grew up in, um, Boy Scouts was a big thing. So 
I was definitely, that was part of what I grew up in was that kind of masculine outdoors culture. And I did that kind of stuff. I liked the outdoors because I grew up in it, but I definitely wasn't really excited to go hunting or fishing or doing those kind of things. So I felt, I think I felt accepted to a degree and also that there was like some rules of what it would mean for me to be um, accepted as a man as I grew older. I think as I grew older, that's when things started to shift. Um, like, you know, kind of got into my teen years and it was becoming more obvious that I was gay. I was never not accepted in my family, but um, I definitely learned how to navigate conversations and how how people wanted me to behave in certain places and I would adapt myself to do that. Yeah. That's interesting to me that you, the sort of place you held within your family being sort of this, there's already a unit established with already rules and ways of being with each other. And then you come in later in some ways that seems like it, I would have imagined that would have been challenging, but in some ways it protected you. It kept, it gave you your own unique place that allowed you to be more authentically yourself than if you were maybe necessarily with growing up with your brothers. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think in that way, it was kind of a blessing for me. So, um, and I also had my, my sister is the oldest in line and she had a daughter that was four years younger than me. So she and I were kind of like our own little unit and the two of us played together. And of course we played with dolls and, uh, you know, we would make believe that we were like, um, best friends and that our husbands, you know, that I was a girl and she was also a girl because that was my, the only way that I could wrap around my head that I was like, had an attraction to men, even as a kid was to pretend when we were playing house or whatever, that I was a woman or I was a girl and that that was my husband. And so we did a lot of make believe together. And there were a lot of, um, a lot of used a lot of imagination around uh gender at that time but it happened so naturally and she accepted it and i accepted it, it just didn't really seem like a big deal that's a lovely little um safe space that you had to play in that i remember it was making me think of growing up of times i grew up in the mid 80s and the 90s and uh certain dolls that I wanted to play with. I remember going to my babysitter's house and the girls were playing with the Barbies and the dolls and I wanted to play, but I wasn't sure if I was allowed to. And I would around certain people, but if somebody else was there, I wouldn't. Um, I remember the toy. Do you remember that toy, the skip it? The thing that you put around your ankle and you skip and you jump over it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I wanted to play with that so badly in elementary school. And it was the girl toy though. And I wasn't allowed to. And I remember sneaking a couple of times to ask a female friend of mine to use it. But it's so funny how we have these rules that whether we're told them or not, we pick up on them. Like we're not really supposed to play with that or we're not supposed to engage in that way. But it sounds like you had a few different safe spaces in order to express yourself. Yeah. And I experienced the same thing you did of like not wanting to play with dolls in front of certain people because I knew that maybe they weren't safe in some way. Yeah. So I heard you say that church was also a part of your life. How how did your religious growing up or your church um, background, how did that impact your, you and your sexuality and your ideas of masculinity? I didn't think that it did. 
um, naively, when I was in my 20s, I just thought, okay, I'm out of the church. I'm, you know, moved past that point, And now I'm going to be this person out in the world. Um, and not until probably my 30s did I start really diving into how it affected me. Um, I grew up in the Mormon church, so there are a lot of rules and uh, a, a strong sense of community. So Mormons tend to stick with other Mormons. And um, and so there wasn't a lot of outside influence on what it's like to not be Mormon. So, um, yeah, that created an ideal of what I was, who I was supposed to be, what there's very, um, there's a timeline for Mormons as you grow up, especially uh, as you're a kid. And when you're 18, 19, as a male, you're supposed to go on a mission and then you go to this school and then you get married by this time. I knew by the time I was probably like 13 or 14 that none of that was going to happen. Um, and I had some friends within the church that were supportive that I don't know that I necessarily had come out to that young, but they had a pretty good sense um, that I wasn't straight. So I had little, it's funny because I've never thought about this until this conversation. I have had little pockets that of safe spaces that have helped move me through um, more challenging periods. But growing up in, growing up in the church was really challenging. Um, and I navigated it because I had to. And the survival skills still follow me today. And I have to be very conscious and aware of um, when beliefs about myself and my safety, uh, being myself, my safety in relationships, my worth, all of that stuff continues to come up. And it's still things that I'm unwinding. But I've done a lot of work around it. And I'm also still very thankful that I've had that experience because it's made me who I am and it's made me someone who's introspective so I could live a healthy, mentally, emotionally healthy life. Well, it's interesting to me that you're, I didn't know that you grew up Mormon. I grew up um, pretty Mormon adjacent. Uh, everyone always assumes I'm Mormon because of my blonde hair and blue eyes and, yes, I, I <laughs> and, <would get> that. <laughs> yeah, and my kindness and yeah. So but there, what I, my understanding, my grandmother was Mormon and I, my dad left the Mormon church as a teenager. And so I never personally grew up Mormon, but I have had my own sort of interactions a lot with the Mormon religion um, and have stood outside of temple while my grandparents were doing their sealing ceremonies. And <laughs> I've been deeply connected to that. And, and in some ways, it's interesting to me that you had, you didn't have such an obvious experience of how it was challenging for you to be a gay man growing up in the Mormon church because there's so much it's not just a religion it's also quite a bit of a culture and there are very clear rules but for what women do and what men do and how they show up and how they engage now I also see that Mormonism often teaches a, a level of kindness and empathy in their men that's different than I see other religions doing so there's yeah. a stewardship, there's a there's a tithing process that teaches you to think outside of yourself. Mm -hmm. So I think there's some really light sides of that too, along with the shadow element that can come up, especially for gay people. Um, but it's fascinating to know that even in that, 
what could be a really challenging environment for a lot of people, you ha even had a safe space in there to be yourself and to find what your journey was going to be through that process? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm so thankful for those people that gave me that safe space. And of course, you know, I did have experiences that weren't safe um, and some that were really blatant and some that were a little less so. Um, and as you mentioned, the culture is, there is a, there is a sense of a lot of kindness within Mormon culture. Um, and there's also a lot of repression and the repression part, um, you, I did not realize not even sexual repression, but just repression of voice and, um, and beliefs and personal, personal opinions are repressed. Um, and that's something that probably just a couple of years ago, I, I'd known that for sure, but also a couple of years ago, I watched, um, watched a movie and there was a scene where there was a gay kid and a few men around him that were is like conversion were around him and like placing their hands on his shoulders, um, as meant to be like a form of healing and kindness and prayer. And I saw that image and it took me right back to being in the church. And it, I was really shaken by that. And I cried after that movie for hours and I just walked around the city that I was in when I watched it and trying to process what, um, what that had unlocked for me and reminded me of. And, you know, that was, I'm 44. That was probably two years ago. I was 42 and didn't realize how much I still had, um, not processed about that because it was so ingrained in me and, and subtle. It's like the subtle stuff that's behind the scenes where you could look at everyone, you know, my memories of all of the men that were my teachers or my friend's parents in the church, they were almost all, except for a few, really kind men, but also living within a construct that allowed them all the power and repressed women and anyone who asked any questions. Yeah, I think that's such an, uh, an important topic in this conversation of masculinity is I think we're having a lot of conversation right now about like tearing down the patriarchy and toxic masculinity that's out there in the culture. And a lot of men are lost going, what do you mean? I'm a nice person. I'm not, I'm not a bad guy. I don't go and hurt people. And yet what you're pointing out is you can be nice and kind and also have adopted a system through no fault of your own. You were raised in the system, but in a system that oppresses others, especially women, um, LGBT people, people of difference, people of minority status. Um, and I think that's an important thing to start looking at. Do you have any sense of you since growing up in one of those systems that sort of teaches that um, inadvertently, maybe, or sometimes purposefully? Um, how? What's the process of uncovering that sort of, I'm a kind person, but I have to take it another step further to sort of see where I have more power and more privilege than another? I think it's listening to other people. 
I think that's been the most valuable tool for me to understand even what my privilege is as a white man um, is to hear other people's experience and to try to see the world through their lens and to know what their struggles and their challenges are. Um, I think without that, we just assume that everyone lives through the lens that we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think we, we as boys are taught to live in that way. Often we're taught to sort of live in our own perspective and not yeah. really given the gift of empathy and to understand, put ourselves into someone else's shoes and really feel what that must be like. And it's not, in some ways, I, I don't think it's men's fault that we don't, that, that, that skill isn't there because it's never been taught. We do teach it to little girls. Little girls are taught very often to understand that and to understand relational dynamics and to have emotional maturity. But what are we doing to sort of build that in boys? Um, especially seeing that many boys tend, especially like if you look at early childhood development, they, they tend towards like the gross motor skill, the ability to move and to play and to roughhouse and to, the, not the fine motor skills that girls are often quite good at or in early development. And so it's like if there's already sort of a, a delay in that process, how do we actually create experiences that help teach that for kids so that men grow up understanding how to listen, understanding how to hear somebody else's experience of reality? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, I think as generations of new parents are choosing to raise their kids differently. I'm really heartened by the people in my life who have kids and I see the way that they choose to raise their kids and the, the things that they, um, that they say or don't say to them to give them the space to be who they are, I think is such a beautiful thing. And it shows to me in just a short time how just a couple of generations um, that starts to change. Yeah, and I, I think there's such even bigger push for that right now, considering like much of the millennial generation is often doing a lot of deconstructing of norm, normal systems within our lives, like what relationships look like, um, what gender looks like. There's yeah. a deconstruction of this sort of what we're supposed to want and what we're supposed to fit into. And a, a new exploration of what's possible, of all the variations on it. And I think that's can be quite confronting and challenging for some people. But I also think it has a really positive, expansive quality to it that gives more freedom and less restriction, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't feel that old, but sometimes when I listen to conversations that people are having that are in their early twenties, it, really does highlight to me wow i'm still kind of stuck in ways that um that i found i thought myself to be a completely open-minded person and some of the things that people are saying are really challenging my beliefs and it's exciting to see that as well it's like, wow i i think i saw this was maybe a year ago or so when um we were, it felt like maybe like the peak of like the Me Too mm. uh, movement. And I think it was like um, Amy Schumer was saying that uh, it took millennial women to come along and say, are you fucking kidding me? Like you've been <laughs> putting up with this shit the whole time. And for women to look around and go, 
oh my God, wow, we really have. Like it takes took a new set of eyes to say, this is ridiculous. You shouldn't be <laughs> taking any of this bullshit. And it is really helpful for me too to take a look around and go, why do I believe that this person has more power over me or, or knows something more than I do uh, that they should have a say that's greater than mine? Mm. Um, and I think that that's given me, continues to give me uh, more personal power and more agency to speak my mind and share my thoughts and, um, and to put my work out there. Yeah. It's interesting that word power is such a intrinsic part of at least what we currently view masculinity as. There's always this power dynamic, power over, more power than less power then there's always this assessment of who has the most power when it comes to masculinity it almost feels like that's the way that most men interact with each other is who's the dominant one and who's not the dominant one who has more ideas who has more money who has more strength who has more it's always this assessment of power like external power yeah and i i, I use the word power a lot in my writing and when i'm working with clients and i don't i rarely uh, think of it as external power until I worked with a, a a woman and I said something about her gaining her power and she was like, I don't like that word. And I think because what I'm thinking of as power is uh, a place of complete internal alignment where you're grounded in your own knowing and you are in charge of your own life because you trust your own life. You trust your intuition. You trust yourself versus power being someone is, like you said, power over or power under. Those dynamics, that's not really what I'm thinking of when I, when I use the term power, but it is true when you, what you just mentioned, how power is such an intrinsic part of what we think of as masculinity and, and how people, men, uh, try to gain power to increase their sense of masculinity or to just gain a sense of value as a person mm -hmm. like where it's it's so interesting how scarcity models play into this whole dynamic of power or this concept of power it's like in the very like divine side of it you're saying it's like trusting self and connected to your own wisdom and ability to listen and hear your own guidance and there's that sort of divine side of it, which everyone can have. There's no scarcity in that. It's like, it's just connected to self. But we have so much infused scarcity models into this concept of power that we're all seeking more to prove our worth, to prove our value, to prove that we deserve something, to sort of counteract the internal shame story that all of us are sort of navigating all the time. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think that that's where, if there is a divine plan, if there is a reason for everything, um, which I believe, but I sometimes I don't say it uh, on a platform like this because I don't. I know that not everybody believes that, but I'll just speak from my perspective. If there is a divine plan, if there is, if we are all connected to something greater. And some people use the word universe or spirit or God or love, just anything that's greater than our physical selves. I think that what's happening right now in this coronavirus period where we are self-quarantining uh, and isolating, 
a big part of what's starting to become more clear to me is that we're seeing things fall apart that were external sources of pleasure, of achievement, of power, and we're seeing what starts, what actually matters to us and how important things like community and connection um, are versus anything that could be a scarcity money. And this period to me feels like a cocoon where we, we know something's changing. We just don't know what's going to happen on the other side. We know things are falling apart and it does feel like a death. My friend wrote something like, um, I'm sure that when a caterpillar goes into a cocoon, it feels like death because everything that that creature knew is falling apart. So something greater could be created. And that's what it feels like this period is for us. Yeah, absolutely. And it sort of reminds me of sort of the framework of that a lot of coaches follow around sort of the trajectory of change that we all go through and that there are four distinct phases of a change cycle, which is around the dissolving phase, the reimagining phase, the implementation phase and that sort of ideal world. And and we're in the midst. We've, I think we've sort of been in the midst as a culture of the dissolving phase, but it sort of feels like it's escalated. And we're now going into that cocoon phase so that then we can reimagine what will be on the other side. But it's true that the dissolving phase often feels scary and feels challenging and feels dark and feels worrisome and fraught with, I don't know. Because you can't see where this is going. All you can see is what's not working mm -hmm. so that you can then focus on dissolving that away. Yeah. And that's, that's a big part of, you know, just from my personal experience, getting comfortable with not knowing with uncertainty. Well, I think it's absolutely true that there is a transformation that's going on right now. And I do think. I tend to be a little hesitant to sort of, as you were saying earlier, like put when you put stuff out there on a public forum, like I'm hesitant in how I'm writing and how I'm sharing my thoughts on this because I also don't want to spiritually bypass through the fear that people are really going through right now. And I don't want to delegitimize this, the, the real impacts that are ha happening at the human animal human level of, of our resources and our ability to provide for ourselves and the ability to even just go to the store to get basic needs. And so for me, I try to like sort of be really what I'm focusing on my writing and how I'm showing up with people is that sort of how do we be together? How do we support each other as we navigate those waves of unknown that keep coming up? Mm -hmm. We each have our own sort of specific several pain points within this experience so it could be like how am i going to provide for myself financially is my business going to go under what about the employees that i have if i do i have to fire them am i going to be able to pay for food am i going to be able to have my basic needs met can i stay in my apartment all that kind of stuff there's so many different points at which this personally has a, a hits a place of pain in, or fear in us and that's coming in waves i noticed some like 
of a group of people will be sort of grounded and fine. And then the wave of fear comes in. And then, and I watch that in myself too. I feel fairly grounded. And then the wave of fear comes in of like watching small businesses around me closing down and recognizing I'm a small business too. And it's like, whoa, that could be me. Yeah. Yeah. I thank you for saying that. And that's, that's kind of like going back to the beginning of our conversation where I was talking about kind of being the intersection between human self and spiritual self and honoring both um, as far as my way of kind of navigating what's happening right now. And it does feel like waves. It feels like there sometimes it's waves that bring me to shore and I can like sit and rest and feel grounded. And I can be the space that I can hold space for someone or a group of people that need, um, need to be held as they experience whatever emotions and fears that they're experiencing. And then I can feel that wave take me out to shore so I can then rely on somebody else to hold space for me. And it feels like a beautiful reciprocity that we're able to do for each other. Um, and not just in kind of uh, spiritual communities or in healing circles where people are used to doing that for each other. This feels like a, it's like <laughs> the whole world is holding space for each other at this point. Um, because we have to we're kind of pushed into this corner to, um, to experience our humanity together. Yeah. And I really, I want to tie this back to our sort of foundational conversation around masculinity, because I think it really applies here. And I think we can, you and I can start to talk about how men can do this process, because I think that this hits at one of the sort of places in masculinity that we're not very good at, which is asking and receiving help, asking mm -hmm. for and receiving help, mm -hmm. like to be dependent on others to like in our culture, mostly you get as a man, you get to be the provider or you get to be the protector. There's not much other room for men to wiggle room for men. Mm -hmm. And right now, our sources of value, our sources of being able to provide are being pulled away from us. Mm -hmm. Whether you are a heterosexual man or a gay man or a trans man, doesn't matter how you identify it, but it does matter that our normal ways of, of validating and valuing, getting value from the outside world are being pulled away. Mm -hmm. And so how do we, how do we as men start to do the internal work of creating value? I think that often we have to get to these points that feel so painful that we don't really have a choice, right? We, we get to these points where we collapse from trying to hold the weight of being strong. And that to me feels like one of the biggest challenges of being a man um of being of trying to i live up to a masculine ideal that we have to be strong and you're right that does that translates through whether we are um a cis man a gay man straight man trans man that's ingrained within us mm -hmm. that strength is where our value lies and it's not until we're able to let 
ourselves be vulnerable and weak and be held by somebody else that we can then see it as a strength because it's our way of connecting with, with somebody else. And I think that that's so needed right now is that it does kind of feel like the divine feminine is like, okay, come in and we're going to slow things down. And all of those ways that you had to value yourself that were external are now being taken away. So who are you when you can, you know, when you don't have those things? Um, so how do we do that? I think, I think it's being forced upon us right now. <laughs> so true. <laughs> yeah, it does feel like we're being pushed and there's enough tension being created that for many people, many men in this case, surrender will be the option that we that many of us lean to to surrender into the care of someone else to surrender into being held by the divine by nature by the source by our loved ones by random strangers that at some point there is an interdependence that is coming through that I think is one of the bright sides that we get to see right now is sort of the, the increase in interdependence and the increase in people showing up for each other and acts of kindness and acts of service. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right that there is a whole quality of the divine feminine holding the container. And it is about men learning to receive that. And it is about men learning to be comfortable in that space. And I've heard from a lot of men that that isn't the most comfortable or the idea that they would have to receive or ask for help or not be able to perform in the way that they've been performing out there in the world. That feels really threatening. And it, and it hits at one of those sort of foundational wounds that we're taught as, as young boys that w weakness is the thing to avoid at all costs. Yeah. Even, even as gay boys, you know, especially as gay boys, we became hyper aware of that. And I think that that's where the perfectionism starts to come in is like, well, if you, if, if I show you how I'm perfect in all of these other ways, you won't see my vulnerable open heart and my desire to just love everyone that's around me um, and to be soft. So it makes me think that there's a, a redefinition of what strength is or a redefinition of what I mean, this whole conversation is really about redefining masculinity to match the current times. There are outdated models that don't serve us anymore. Mm -hmm. And it is about redefining to say, this is how we as men can navigate all of this, can ride the waves of the unknown, can ride the ebbs and the flows back and forth so that we can hold space for others, but also be held mm -hmm. um, in that process. And so if you were to look in your own life and what you value and what how it's sort of transformed over time what are some of the new ideals that you have around masculinity or new definitions that you hold for strength and masculinity mm. well one of the biggest is that men are safe that was that was and continues to be one of the the biggest revelations for me in my own healing is to Number one, to realize that most men haven't felt safe around each other, maybe their entire lives. And so true. If you, if you can't feel safe around other men, 
you don't even trust yourself, right? Because you're a man. So <laughs> um, when I started to realize that so many men didn't feel safe around each other and feared each other, and that was part of the reason that the bravado um, happened, then it helped me see that I don't need to be scared of that. It's just it's just another mask that these people are wearing, and um, and that I can see beyond that mask. That that man who's showing off in this way or, or boasting um, that in the past would have made me feel unsafe. I can see through that and realize that he is just needing love. He's just needing attention. Um, he probably just needs someone's shoulder to cry on, someone to give him a really long hug. Um, and so that's what led me to do my first men's groups was to get gay men together so that they could experience a safe space to be open hearted with other men. Um, and I think people who are outside of the gay community would assume that we already have something like that. And we really don't. I mean, no. <laughs> very limited. <laughs> we, we've absorbed some, some of the same toxic stuff over time and the same sort of like power dynamics. And yet we do it in a way that we're supposed to be a community, but yet there's still some of those sort of power dynamics playing out. And so I think you're absolutely right that even for gay men, having a group like that would be a very first, if not, if not first, an early experience of safety with other men or with other gay men. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting to notice the dynamic, the different in dynamic, difference in dynamics of a men's group to a women's group, because I have held both. And at one point I was holding them within the same week. And so I would move from the women's group on one night to the men's group the next night and watching the, um, the interrelation between the, the women versus the men was so very enlightening. And I think because I've spent a lot of time in groups where people um, let themselves be held and open themselves up that I was just kind of expecting a little bit more from gay men to be able to do that. And um, it highlighted the reason that I'm doing the work that I do. <laughs> yeah, totally. Because I've done some men's workshops. I mean, in the self-help world, there's a lot of women taking part in that. Um, but I have done work in men's groups and, and one of the things I find, I wonder if that's true for you is that they, men don't have the models for how to be intimate and to build trust with each other. They don't have the ability to do that. And yet once you start to crack into them a little bit and the first little bit of vulnerability starts to show up, you actually see how much men are really craving that male intimacy and that connection and that feeling safe with each other. Yeah, one of my um, one of my most revered teachers. Um, I hold him as such a a sacred space for me because he was the first man that I really felt um, could hold a position of not authority, but he was holding space in a large group of people without um, without using any sort of dominance or 
um, scarcity or or power over anyone in the group. And it helped me, it healed my heart so much to see that there are men and that there are spaces where um, it, it, it felt to me like he was the ideal father in the sense that he could he could hold a container really really well and that he could also allow people to feel safe being completely vulnerable and open and once i had that experience it changed the way that i related to men and it made me want to work with men a lot more because I knew that there weren't a lot of people, men having the experience of someone that's really safe and grounded and connected and in their own power, but also um, someone that you could really lean on and open up to. Well, I love that you had that experience because I think it's something I spent a lot of my 20s and early 30s looking for is that sort of experience of that divine father energy within someone mm -hmm. within a man that could create that space and, and and interestingly i think it's something i haven't i still have yet to experience it's something that i'm personally working on in my facilitation and trying to be able to create for others mm -hmm. and i can see it's still a growing edge for me because i can value their path and their journey and and create safety and be um, empowering, help empower them. But there's still the work on the internal shame stories and the internal judgment stories of myself yeah. that block me from being able to fully hold that container. And I, th and I think it's interesting to sort of learn, trying to teach yourself how to build that kind of a container, having not had models of it. So I love that you actually had a model of it and could see it. Yeah, I, I so relate to what you're saying of um, like wanting to be able to envisioning the type of space that you would like to hold and then being aware of the limitations because of, um, you know, the wounding that still needs some healing. So aware of that. Um, and it's such a brave thing for you to do, for us to do. I'm doing the same thing to still step out and offer the space that we can at the capacity that we have, because that's the only way that we continue to kind of grow that edge and to be able to, I think for me anyway, like doing the work that I do is and has been the next step in my healing because I'm coming face to face with the things that are my own challenges um, sometimes in, in relating to my clients or relating to the groups that I work with or seeing the things that, um, that people are, that are working with me are working through. And it's usually so close to home of the things that I've worked through or I'm currently working through. And it gives me another opportunity to see where I'm at in the cycle of healing. Yeah, I think that's one of my favorite parts of the work that I do also is is that my clients are often coming to me as I'm working on a pattern. And like I might be a step or two ahead of them and they're asking for the the wisdom or the in the the help in that process or the the sort of stewardship through that process. And it 
in in starting to teach it or in starting to share it or being with somebody else in their in their process it helps me integrate my work on a deeper level and so it feels very co-creative and very like generative for both of us and i really love that it's not just me step standing up here telling them what to do but that it actually is that sort of spiritual friendship and relationship that actually helps the development process for both of us yeah yeah beautifully said that's i i've experienced that many times um and i think i find that often people just want to know that someone shared shares the experience because some of the things that are, that we hold is so shameful within us we just want to know that we're not alone in that and for someone to be able to speak vulnerably and share the fact that they've experienced whatever um this shared experience is and and even if you're one step ahead in your clarity around it it's valuable to that person because it's it's something that they weren't aware of or um and it is it is it is walking side by side it's not even like a step ahead it is side by side but it's just a different perspective yeah totally and i think that that's why i reached out to you and wanted you to be a part of this is because i see you modeling that really well um in what i've been able to see of your work is is that you model a balance between holding space and holding the container for others but also sharing your own journey and also sharing your own places where you stumble or places where you're still locked in a system that was taught to you and i really appreciate how you hold that because you don't over, you don't go so far into the vulnerability that it feels like people have, your clients now have to take care of you but you also are real enough to acknowledge where you're at and where your journey is taking you and, and to me that's something i so value in the self help world is people that can do that i've had it my own challenging experiences with teachers who have represented themselves as some as being through all of their stuff but then you get in close and you see the real human there mm -hmm. and in some ways that's it's a beautiful quality to be able to see the real human beyond the image that's portrayed mm -hmm. but then when the ego comes in and tries to block you from seeing that and and or pushes their pushes their stuff out onto the person that's receiving from them I think that's a, that can be a really challenging dynamic that keeps clients looping in the shame stuff around I can never evolve out of this. Sure. But part of it's the wounding of the person <laughs> that they're not acknowledging. And so I love the way you hold it from what I've seen of you of 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 finding that balance of sharing the truth and the vulnerability but also being able to be a guide as well. Thank you. I'm thank you for saying that. Um I think that I had an idea in my mind when I first started that had the desire to do this work that I was looking at people that were really well branded and well packaged and I thought okay that's where I'm headed I want to get to that point where I it's it's like a finish line oh I've done all my work I don't have to do any more work I have <laughs> everything I need to know and yeah. now I can just help other people and uh and i think it i think it hindered me in the beginning because um i didn't feel like i had anything to a value to offer mm -hmm. because there was i could see oh no there's still more there's still more that i'm i'm working through and so it made me feel like my voice wasn't um as relevant and it slowed slowed me down but i now see as we know 
this is this is part of being human you will always have something that comes into your awareness that could use some healing and some um some growth and that's that's the best part of being human to me i love that i love when i see something um that i wasn't aware of and i can go oh wow okay it kind of sucks it kind of like maybe it ruined that relationship or um or you know i could be further along in my life if that wasn't the case but it is and now what what's possible for me now that i have awareness of this and that i uh, i'm ready to dive into it yeah yeah i i also really love that process and i think that human word comes up again as as we all step forward and we create our own versions of healing work that we're doing out there in the world that the humanist still needs to be present that it's not just this presentation of a brand and, and of the healer. Mm -hmm. the he it's not just the healer that's present, but the, the human is present. At least that's what I value. And I really thank you for showing up in the world in that way, because that's helpful for me to see people doing it in a way that resonates with me rather than sort of those prepackaged, nice little like branded, mm -hmm. uh, branded identities that, that if I actually listen to my inner knowing or my instinct, sometimes I can, feel the facade that's there right you can feel the the out of alignment pieces that are actually present yeah yeah i think and i think that as we as a society um develop our like for lack of a better term our, our collective spirituality mm. um we start tapping into our own intuition and we realize that we're all highly sensitive people and we all can if 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 we take ourselves out of the framework um that we grew up in um i.e capitalism and things like that we can start to tap into our own inner knowing and we can pick up on those things really easily and i think we are i think People are like old marketing tools and things like that are just starting to become so irrelevant because people can see right through it. Um, and people want to connect from heart to heart and want to be able to have some sort of um, understanding of who that other person is behind the screen or behind, you know, the camera um, and really be felt. That's so true. I've, I've used people will tell me, Oh, you should do this. You should write a book. You should have this blog. You should do this. And, and in some ways I run into this concept of like, I'm immersed in self help world all the time. And I have lots of coaches as friends and everybody's writing a blog and everybody's got a book and everybody's got a this. And, and in some ways that is someone's way of communicating and way of showing up and connecting with the heart. For me, it doesn't feel in alignment and, and it sometimes feels like outdated technology because it's just like another voice in the noise. Mm -hmm. And it's like, how do you actually connect with the heart? And for me, it's about finding a new way to do it. That's why I'm experimenting with this podcast is it's, it's much more connected to my, what I see as my strength of being sort of verbal um, rather than written language. Mm -hmm. But something you were sharing around that, that tapping into our own intuition, into our own gut, our own inner knowing. It's something that I really learned from my work. I don't know that you know this part about me, but I do a version of coaching that involves horses. And so I take people out and do experiential learning called Equus Coaching. And horses are always 
in that space. They're always connected to their own needs, their own inner guidance. They're never like, that's a thousand pound animal. I don't actually have control when I'm engaging with a horse. Like I can put a halter on that horse's face. And that doesn't mean that I actually have control. If they want to run, they're going to run. And so they don't do the same sort of social game that we as humans do. And so I, I get to, they sort of invite, have in my work with them. And then what I share with clients is they invite us into a space of reconnecting to that inner knowing into feeling that inner truth. And that is something that early on we teach little children out of. We teach them not to listen to their instincts and to, and to play the social game as a way of fitting in and belonging and receiving love. And yet they, we teach them to disconnect from themselves and their own truth and how ugh, I wish that we didn't have to do that. But I do love that there are modalities out there to help us reconnect to that. Yeah, I am so with you, especially being around kids recently. I have some new babies and toddlers in my life and watching how they express themselves and when they know they're done with something, they're done with something. When they're excited about something, they're excited about it. And they don't give a shit <laughs> like how other people view what they are excited about or over. And they follow that knowing so easily. And I find it really inspiring. Same thing with my dog that's sitting beside me. <laughs> She's the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're not taught to not listen to that. They don't. Taught, they're not taught to soften the transitions and soften the edges so that everyone else feels comfortable. They just are deeply attuned to themselves and into their, um, into what's happening for them and into their, their, their internal rhythms. And they follow that. That doesn't mean they're, they're such a nice model too, because it doesn't mean they're disconnected from understanding that they have an impact on others. They're able to, they, kids, kids are very able to feel for other, for other people and to feel when someone else is struggling and to want to take care of them. They're very connected to that and they're very connected to self. They hold this nice balance of inner and outer awareness. That to me feels like um, the perfect balance of masculine and feminine. <laughs> yes, yes. I would totally agree. And yet we teach kids to move away from that. Mm -hmm. But I love that I don't know if you look at coaching and the work that you do this way. Like I look at people often think in coaching, they're going to learn some new things. And I actually think it's an unlearning process. It's about removing who you learn to be, to fit in, to belong, to receive love and actually return back to that inner state that you came into this world as. Absolutely. We have everything that we need from the time we're born. Everything that we need is within us and, and yeah, that's the way that I work with people. And that's my take on it is coming back to your essence and finding your personal gifts, because I think that we all have them. Um, and, and kind of going back a little bit, just, just as an example, I feel like one of my personal gifts and probably I would guess yours is this sense of open-heartedness and just wanting to love so much and receive love and give love and no filter there from heart to heart. And that's something that I am still working on. Of like, I know that that's one of my biggest gifts and it has felt like for a good portion of my life, one of the biggest challenges of 
yeah, totally. how, how to show up as that person um, and and to not take others' inability to show up in the same way as a, as you know belief that I did something wrong or that I should be different. Yeah, totally. That's my exact journey too. Because I live that I, as a child, was very that open-hearted, expressing love, very just emotional all the time. And I learned over time how to put that filter or put that space between me and my authentic emotional heartfelt expression as a way of staying safe as a way of letting my mind come in and, and analyze is this safe to show up this way is it can i can i trust these people is am i going to be rejected for sharing my love in this way and yet i'm really interested in continuing to deconstruct those that that space i put in between there so that i can keep showing up in that open-hearted way can I ask you a question that's Please. it's it's selfishly wanting to um, have more uh, examples of people doing this. So I don't know if this is what's happening in your life, but you're in a relationship, right? Mm -hmm. um, how does that how does that affect your relationship? Your your want and desire to be fully expressed in your ability to love and receive love. Does that knock up against anything in your life? Well, I think that in my current relationship is different than any relationship I've ever been in, in that there's this sort of rule in our relationship that we've agreed upon that we are going to celebrate each other's bigness, no matter what that means. Like my partner, also named Travis, um, he tends to be on the very exuberant, extroverted, loud side of things mm -hmm. and the joke is i've never been out extroverted by someone um, until this relationship and so there's ways in which his life has taught him to be smaller like mm -hmm. oh you're too much you're this you're too big you're too much you take up too much space and i heard those stories really early on and so my commitment to him is to continue to celebrate those ways that mm -hmm. where he is big and allow and to keep encouraging him to allow that for himself and none of the reverse, he does that for me with my sensitivity, with my emotions, with my open heart, with my desire to continue doing my self-work all the time. He creates a lot of space for me to do that as well. And so in this relationship, I feel really like supported in that process. But what I do notice is like, I bump up against the edge of how much I can receive because I do trust and know that the man that I'm with loves me so big. <laughs> and sometimes that's hard for me to take in. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes is sad to me to recognize like where I hit my own edge of how much I can receive and how much I can believe his version of me versus the version of me that the strict inner dialogue and the critic is going on. Yeah. I bump up against that. Yeah. Um, so in that relationship, I do think it's interesting, but I do have, I've had some, I would say, kind of challenging relational experiences in the last five years that have, have shifted the way I feel safe being open hearted in the world. And yet I can see that the coping strategies that I've used recently, I'm starting to outgrow them. 
And so there's this growing edge of like wanting to be open, more open hearted, but not also always feeling safe enough to do so or feeling like it's going to get taken advantage of or feels like I'm going to be demolished again. Mm-hmm. And so it's a growing edge for me. This, this There's this phrase I keep using the last year or so, which is I want to be one of those people who is so generous with themselves. Like, you know, when you just come into contact with somebody that not on a financial level, but just shows up in the dialogue so generously with themselves yeah. that you like, it, that, like the world shrinks down to just that moment with the two of you. Yeah. No, I want I, to be one of those people. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I can think of people that I've had conversations with that it's felt like that. That's I really like that. And that for me is the language that I'm using around like being generous of like that. You have to be open hearted. You have to be trusting of self. You have to be grounded in self and, and, and having in good relationship with self, but also very open hearted externally to be one of those people. And so it's, it's my still, journey of finding that for myself and i think people would laugh hearing that that know me that would say like they see me as open-hearted they see me as generous with myself but there is this even knowing within myself that there's more yeah that i'm still trying to find yeah i hear you and uh it is important for us to just be also good with where we are right yeah totally strict voice that's because that's i i so relate to everything you just said about your your own experience of yourself versus other people's experience of you and um, being able to receive what people say and to let it land um, and to be okay with you know where we are right now and for you are you in a relationship right now i'm dating right now okay and so how do you find in the dating process the whole open-heartedness as a man (laughs) It is interesting. It is, um, it's my growing edge, not, not being open hearted, but, um, it's interesting to want to be, as you said, that generous person in, um, in a dynamic and also not need somebody else to match. Mm. Oh, I know that one right there. (laughs) (laughs) Do not need them to match the generosity in the way that I think that they should because it's the way that I would receive it most easily. That I think is one of my biggest lessons right now is to be able to see this is how this person communicates. It's very different when it's a coaching relationship, right? Or totally. <laughs> but when it's an interpersonal relationship and especially um, like a romantic dating type of um, relationship, being able to see who this person is for who they are, this is where they're at, this is how they're showing up. I really appreciate that they're showing up in these ways. And I also have this desire for them to show up in this other way. And navigating what what is at what point do i say i accept this person for who they are and as they are and i know that they're showing their love and affection and attention to me in the way that is most natural to them does that align with what i need in my life and finding the difference between Maybe that doesn't align with how I need my partner to be, 
or do I actually need my partner to be a certain way for me <laughs> to receive the love? So that's kind of where I'm at right now in, in this place of, um, of sitting with my desire to control the way that someone gives me the love that I think that they need to give me in the way that they need to give it. And also being aware of when it's not a match. Mm. Yeah, and it's hard in the dating process to really assess that because you're in the middle of it and you're not on the other side of it. Like you can off hindsight's twenty twenty, you can look back and go, "Oh, it just wasn't a match." Yeah. But in the middle of it, it's like trying to f negotiate and find out is this a match? Mm -hmm. While the question is still there, and I, I think something that's been so helpful for me in my relationship is the places where we don't connect or where we share love in different ways is finding somebody that can have the dialogue with you around that to ask the questions to be able to say you mean outside party no like being for me it's it, within my relationship we're able to do that the two of us is talk about where we're not matching up right. and start to ask the questions around it can you are you able to show up in this way here's how i would receive from a place of curiosity rather than a place of controlling each other right yeah yeah and it, it especially when you said um, hindsight, looking back on relationships, of course, we can see everything that we couldn't see in the moment. Um, and one of, one of my biggest ahas over the last couple of years was that I only trust myself to the degree that I've forgiven myself. Mm. And especially around dating, because, you know, there's, it's easy to look back and go, man, why did I spend so much time in this relationship that just wasn't working? Um, and not wanting to make that same mistake again in the future because I would beat myself up for it. And so if I can continually forgive, I did the best that I could in that moment with the information that I had, with the place I was at in my life. And it was a beautiful thing and I got what I needed out of it. So did that person, even if it was a lot of lessons and if I can forgive myself, then I can trust myself because I'm going to be doing the best that I can right now, given the, the information that I have, the place that I'm at in my life. And if I know that that's what's actually happening, then I won't beat myself up if the relationship doesn't work out or I spent a long time learning a lesson. Um, then I can actually trust myself. Okay, I'm just going to go with this because it feels right. And who knows if this is like the person I'm going to be with for the rest of my life or, or that it's a seasonal relationship, but it feels right. And I know I'm, ga I'm gaining something from this and I'm giving something in this relationship. And so uh, roll with it. Well, I think that that concept of self-forgiveness is an actually a really important part of what we've been talking around around masculinity of you and I've sort of been talking about how men in all kinds of relationships with other men even if you're not gay if, if you're just strictly platonic relationships where it doesn't always feel safe to be in to have to have to be vulnerable to have intimacy and there's places where we've shut that down and locked away locked ourselves away and in the process of sort of reintegrating the feminine, allowing the connection to be there and the intimacy and the vulnerability to be there in relationships, in the surrender that we're all in right now as a, as a global human race due to the coronavirus, that that forgiveness of self for the past 
past places where we missed connections, where we didn't do it well, that we hurt someone, that we were hurt by someone, those places where we can forgive ourselves so that we can now re-engage with the relationships as they are in front of us, mm -hmm. I think is a really important thing, not just in a dating relationship, but in all relationships. Right. Yeah. I mean, and even outside of relationships, just decision-making um, and being connected to ourselves, and, you know, not, not fracturing ourselves, you know, as we would do when we're growing up, being that authentic version of ourselves as we are as kids, like just trusting, I'm not going to turn around and chastise myself, you know, a couple of days from now over the decisions that I'm making right now, because I love myself. And that, that's where self-love, it always comes back around to that. It is for me the basis of everything. And even when the times that I could vomit from hearing the, the phrase self-love because <laughs> I've used it either so much or other people around me are using it so much. And it's just so frustrating to feel like I do love myself. Yes, but there's more, mm -hmm. more. There's always more. And for me, it, it always comes back to. It always comes back to that, everything. And I think there's one important distinction because I think there's so much of the conversation around masculinity, around toxic masculine behaviors or power over behaviors. There's also, yes, self-love and self-forgiveness around past things that have happened where there has been misdeeds or where there has been pro problematic behavior but also not skipping ahead of the accountability piece on times where you actually have wronged somebody else or where you have not acted from your best self or your most connected to self, self-love, trust um, part of you, and you've acted out of um, scarcity or fear or power or play, like there's, a, there's a, an, an interesting distinction that's necessary when engaging in relationships around accountability, but self-forgiveness and to not just jump over the accountability piece into the self for trying to get to the self forgiveness. Right. Because I think that's damaging into the relationship with the other, the other one on the outside. Absolutely. That's as, as I think you were mentioning right at the beginning, that's that, that is spiritual bypassing. Yeah. So um, one other thing I wanted to pull you out on was because it sounds like you actually do have some models of really healthy, masculine balanced behavior. Are there any, names or people that you would call out um, to sort of raise their names so that people can start to explore who they are that sort of represent those new masculine behaviors or that sort of balance of masculine and feminine in a male body? Yeah. Um, I mean, the two people that come to my mind are just people that um, that I've worked with and that are friends of mine and that are in, in my current life. Um, the one is the the teacher that I told you that I felt so safe with, and that was my breathwork teacher, David Elliott. He is just an incredible teacher, whether you want to be taught about breathwork or not. It's, I got more out of how he held space for people and, um, and also holds people accountable in a way that feels safe and loving and really, really caring. Um, and someone that I met out of that group is also a breathwork teacher. Uh, and a friend of mine, um, and his name is Frankie Salazar. And when I 
think of I, an ideal balanced masculine and feminine he's someone that comes to mind and they, they both happen to be straight men and I think that that's why it sticks out to me because I hadn't experienced um, many straight men to be this way um, and so these are this these are just purely my personal experiences with these two people have led me to feel comfortable around more men especially straight men yeah, well, I appreciate you bringing them up because I think that's something that I've noticed a few of the guests that I've been having on this. And when I talk to people out there, out in the outside world, most of us don't have that many strong models of that. And so I want to keep bringing those voices up into the into the conversation so that people can start to look around and find those those men around them that are holding that energy and mm-hmm. to celebrate those men. It's like it's one thing to have a conversation about what's not working about masculinity. But we have to create that positive feedback loop that says, yes, that's exactly what we want. That's that's exactly what where we're headed. Because so many times I've heard when men try to engage in the conversation around the transformation of this, they're like, well, I feel like I can't do it right. I feel like I can't, I'm going to be like something I did in the past is going to be used against me and I'm not perfect. And and yet if we can learn to celebrate the men that are even in even if it's just moment to moment even if it's, they don't hold it perfectly every single every day of every in every moment that none of us do i definitely don't and so it's like those celebrating the moments that are there to create that positive reinforcement that keeps that sort of momentum building in that direction so thanks for bringing them up absolutely so we've had quite a nice conversation spanning all different types of religion to coronavirus yeah, to we- surrender. <laughs> we've been a little all over the place. If there is anything that you would sort of do to synthesize our conversation or to offer a piece of advice or an intention or an offering to men, what would that be? Yes, it kind of always, it always comes back to this for me whether it's men or not, but absolutely for men, is that it's safe to be open-hearted. I think that we're all trained to guard and protect and that all anybody wants from us is to see who we are, to feel who we are, for us to speak from our heart, to share from our heart, and then to be received by our open heart. And that to me is the, is the, the balanced masculine feminine qualities. If you have an open heart, then you can both be received and received. And that the, the messages that we've received around having an open heart is that it's not safe because we've gotten hurt or, um, that, you know, that's not what men do or whatever the storylines are. Um, we've all been programmed with that belief that it's not safe to be open-hearted and that it's weak. And so I think that if there's any message that I want to share, it's that it's, it is the strongest position to have an open heart. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, it feels very um, personally salient to me in the sense of that's, that's where my continued growth is, is to continue believing and knowing and seeing evidence that it is safe to be open-hearted in this world as a man. Um, or as a person in general Um, because you're right there are life experiences that teach us that the opposite is true but to start to look for the evidence of where it is true right and and you can't have that evidence if you're not (laughs) open-hearted 
And so what it, d- it takes is taking calculated risks to try it out and see the feedback and get the and try again, open a little further and get the feedback, open a little further and get the feedback. Yeah. And to base that feedback internally, not that feedback externally, like people telling you what you should be or like they don't like that or whatever, but to really internalize your own sense of how does it feel when you try that. Yeah. And to listen to people who are speaking from their heart. You probably, listeners, us, we also all resonate with people who are speaking from their heart. Like you were saying, like we were talking about, um, you know, teachers or coaches or healers that maybe aren't speaking from their heart sometimes that we can feel that and use that as an example, as an outside example um, from yourself, an external example from yourself, but to notice who you connect to. You connect to people who are speaking from their heart and use that as a, as an example for yourself that that's what people are drawn to within you. So whatever you've got, whoever you are, whatever your life experiences, the people that are meant for you are going to be really, really attracted to your open heart. Mm, I love that. So if people want to connect with you or want to continue finding the work you're doing, I know I just for all the listeners, I did um, the digital program that Ryan um, created for called Lifted Men. That's for gay men around sort of showing our gifts to the world and, and uncovering them underneath the, the pain and shame and traumas of our lives. And it's been a really powerful experience to go through. I think some of the most things that have stuck out to me the most are sort of reconnecting to the inner child and having opening up the dialogue between me and the little boy that learned some things back in the past um as well as the as the breathwork meditation that he teaches um within the within the course has been really powerful and so i have my own personal experiences of um allowing ryan to hold space for me and to to be a guide on my own journey and i highly recommend uh his work but um so if people want to find more about it um where can they reach you yeah, thank you for sharing that. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, the Lifted Men program is something that um, is so from my heart. Um, and it was scary putting it out there as as an example of being open-hearted. You know, it's a, it's a really big place to be seen to share my personal experiences and the things that have worked for me, but so very worth it to have that out there as a resource for other gay men um so my website if you want to connect with me or learn further is um, my name ryanallen.co and on instagram which is where i spend most of my time writing and sharing um, my name there is ryan.m.co Great. I'll make sure that all of that's in the show notes so that um, people can find you if they didn't hear it there. If people want to connect with me, you can go to my website at travisstock.com. You can email me directly at travisstock03 at gmail.com. Or you can go to my Instagram at travers03. I really do enjoy this conversation to be a continued living conversation, not just kept to the confines of the of the podcast episode so please keep participating in the in the conversations that are out there on social media thank you so much ryan for joining me on this podcast Um, thanks for offering what you do to the world and what you are putting out there in the lifted men program is um, feels really 
connected to something that feels very heartfelt to me um, and feels really powerful. And so thank you for what you're doing to help men show up open-heartedly and feel safe doing so. Thank you, Travis. Thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation. And I really enjoyed um, where where it's headed, all of the twists and turns that it had, but I think it's so relevant to me right now. So I appreciate the opportunity and I'm so glad that you're adding your voice to the kind of more healed masculine side of being a man. Well, thank you so much. And it feels wonderful to be in this space with another man that's doing the same out there in the world.